Stories are run in a cycle of the news to where we almost become sick of them. What happened to the stories that dominated the news for such a long time? Did they ever figure out what the actor or actress's death was caused by? Who was the killer in that string of murders? Does the legendary creature exist, or was it made up by someone simply seeking attention? How did that one person die? Welcome to the Aftermath, where we hop in our time machines and figure out what ended up happening in the news stories we followed so intently and then never heard the ending to due to life smacking us in the face with more happenings. Forgotten Story the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. In a weird twist of fate, Ronald Reagan's popularity was helped by an assassination attempt on his life. Before the shooting, Ronald Reagan had the lowest approval rating of any president during his first term in office. Reagan's rating, while in office, was 42%. In the early 80s, recessions, unemployment hit a 40-year high and approval peaked at 73%. The powers of the president were actually never given to anyone else during this time through the presidential line of secession. Complicate matters, Secretary of State Alexander Haig caused anger and arguments at a press conference by stating, quote, I am in control here, end quote, while President George H.W. Bush returned to Washington, D.C. Since the vice president was not physically present in Washington, D.C., Secretary Haig thought that as Secretary of State, he was meant to step up and assume the command. But in reality, according to the U.S. Constitution, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives would have been next after the vice president. Tip O'Neill was that man, and he should have been the one to take over for President Reagan and Vice President Bush. Secretary Haig was angry about his mistake as was Speaker O'Neill. Some dispute has been made since and has been debated heavily over whether Haig was simply talking about being in charge of the press conference or if he was simply making a power play. Today we dive into the events, reactions, mistakes, and problems that arose during the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan. On March 30th, 1981, it was a rainy Monday afternoon. Reagan had just wrapped up a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel, about a mile and a half north of the White House, and was being spirited out of the building surrounded by his Secret Service detail. President Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest outside of the Washington, D.C. hotel by a man named John Hinckley Jr. Slander, bad news. You know what we have to do. Ah, oh, crap. Do we have to? I get motion sickness every time we're in the time machine. Stop your bitching. Just hop in. <laughs> Welcome to the year 1981. From July of 81 to November of 82, the U.S. economy experienced the most significant recession since the Great Depression. The 52 U.S. citizens who were being held in for 441 days in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, began their journey home. Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. On August 3rd, about 13,000 members of the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, PATCO, walked off the job over better pay and working conditions. Two days later, President Reagan fired 11,345 of them. Bacon was $1.29 for a one-pound package, bananas three pounds for a dollar, beef sirloin filet $1.86 per pound, bread $0.59 cents per loaf, butter Land O'Lakes $0.99 cents for an eight-ounce package, chocolate syrup Hershey's brand $0.69 cents for a 16-ounce can, coffee the eight o'clock brand $1.49 for a one-pound bag, eggs $0.95 cents a dozen. 1245 Sunday, John Warnick Hinckley from Ardmore, Oklahoma, arrives in Washington, D.C. on a Greyhound bus at 1215 p.m. He had purchased his ticket to Washington on March 26, 1981 in Hollywood, California for $117.80. Apparently, 
he was planning on treating himself to a belated birthday gift of shooting the president because it was the day after his birthday. After arriving in Washington, D.C., he checked in at his hotel roughly around 1 p.m., which was to be at the Park Central Hotel. This room ran him about $47 for a one-night stay. Apparently, he was spotted on the south lawn of the White House. Looking around, he must have been procuring an alibi, you know, by asking tourists that were walking around if the president was in the White House today. Like they would friggin' know? I guess the people he talked to hadn't been approached by the Secret Service and offered a schedule of the president's rundown for the day. How rude can the Secret Service be? I guess if you think about it, it was actually a smart move. Why have to travel everywhere and chase the van all over Washington when he can just let him come to you and then you can be on your merry way? Other helpful tourists directed him towards the front door of the White House, suggesting that might be a better place to wait. Gotta love this, sweetheart people who are always trying to help out. Then at 1.50 p.m., he was seen standing in a crowd behind a rope barrier a short distance from the VIP entrance. At 2.25 p.m., President exited out the VIP door of the Washington Hilton Hotel. Reagan started to walk towards his limousine, which was 50 feet from the exit. Near Reagan was Secret Service Agent McCarthy, Press Secretary Jim Brady, and Washington, D.C. Police Officer Delahante. As the president approached the right fender of his limousine, six shots from a handgun were fired in rapid succession. Reagan was struck in the left chest area by a bullet that ricocheted off the right rear quarter panel of his limousine. Press Secretary Jim Brady was struck by a bullet that entered his brain above his left eye. Secret Service Agent McCarthy was hit in the abdomen with one round. One round hit Officer Delahante in the neck as it passed over the limousine and through a glass window of a nearby building. One round struck the right rear glass window of the limousine and six shots were in total fired in 1.7 seconds at a distance of approximately 15 feet from the president. John Hinckley was immediately subdued by Secret Service agents and officers of the Metropolitan and Park Police Departments. The weapon had been purchased by Hinckley on October 13, 1980 in Dallas, Texas. Way to learn from that JFK shooting there, Dallas. Following the shooting, President Reagan was taken by limousine to the George Washington University Hospital. Brady and McCarthy were transported by ambulance to the same location of George Washington University Hospital, and Delonte was taken to the Washington Hospital Center. Hinckley shot a 22 caliber ROM RG-14 revolver six times at Reagan. After firing the shots, Hinckley was overpowered and penned against the wall, and President Reagan, apparently unaware that he'd been shot, was shoved into a limousine by Secret Service agents and rushed to the hospital. In a report released by court-appointed psychiatrists that had examined Hinckley on April 1st of 81, it was stated that Hinckley was mentally competent to stand trial. Magistrate Margulies ruled favorably on the motion by the government to have Hinckley immediately committed to a federal facility to undergo comprehensive medical examination. This order was appealed by the defense to Judge William Bryant, and he upheld the ruling by Magistrate Margulies allowing for a comprehensive mental examination and assured the defense attorneys that their psychiatric experts would have equal access to Hinckley. By agreement with both prosecution and defense, due to security reasons, Hinckley was transported to a federal correctional facility in Butner, North Carolina, on April 13th of 81. A special grand jury was impaneled at Washington, D.C. to hear the evidence collected at the case entitled U.S. Government versus John Hinckley Jr. It was later said by Rolfe that he advised that the trial in the matter would probably not occur until the fall of 1981. Here's a copy of the investigation that was, was to occur in the fall of 81. 
conducted on the day of the assassination attempt by the FBI investigation. It concluded to date by Federal Bureau of Investigation has established at the beginning in the September of 1980, John Hinckley Jr. crisscrossed the United States on several occasions on his travels that took him to New York, New Haven, Lubbock, and Dallas, Texas, along with Lincoln, Nebraska, Columbus, and Dayton, Ohio, Mexico, Los Angeles, California, and Washington, D.C. was the final phase of his travel, which all began in Los Angeles and Denver on March 25th of 81. Hinckley arrived in Washington, D.C. on the 29th of 81, and the attempted assassination of President of the United States Ronald Reagan took place on March 30th of 81 at approximately 2.25 p.m., outside the VIP entrance of the Washington Hilton at street corners Connecticut and T Streets in Northwest Washington, D.C., there were approximately 285 people that were present at the scene of the crime, either viewing it from a distance across the street in a window or in the intermediate area of the presidential party. Of these 285 people interviewed, there were only 29 that actually witnessed the individual fire away at the president or saw the weapon in the hands of the individual, but some would not be able to identify him. There were 18 key witnesses. The crime scene area was secured, manned by Metropolitan Police officers, a thorough search of the initial area by the agent that recovered it. Of significance, the weapon used a 22 caliber revolver long rifle model RG-14. All four victims were treated for gunshot wounds and bullet fragments recovered from the victims during obtained searches on March 30th and 31st of 1981 of room 312 at Park Central Hotel, Washington, D.C., which was rented by Hinckley earlier in the day. On March 29th of 81, numerous items of evidence which were turned over to the FBI laboratory for examination. Among them was a letter written by Hinckley himself to actress Jodie Foster, in which Hinckley expresses love for Foster and states that he's going to kill the President Reagan as an expression of love for Foster. In the course of this investigation, items evidently of value were seized from person John Hinckley at the Washington Hotel and Washington Hospital. I was going to read off every one of these uh, bits of evidence that were turned over, but I don't have time because it's 63 pages long and it really has no bearing on the trial. So, Let's move ahead. Now we're going to hop over to the hospital. We'll come back to where we were at, where we figure out what was happening with Reagan. You want to know why Ronald Reagan was hailed even highly by Democrats? Reagan had been shot and had one of the most badass reactions to getting shot. The president was shot in the left lung and the 22 caliber bullet just missed his heart. One of the surgeons met him there was Dr. Benjamin Aaron, then chief of cardiopathic surgery at George Washington University Hospital. An impressive feat, Reagan, a 70-year-old man who had just been shot and had a collapsed lung, walked in under his own power to George Washington University Hospital. As he was treated and prepared for surgery, he was in good spirits and joked with his wife Nancy, quote, honey, I forgot to duck, end quote. And to his surgeons, he said, quote, please tell me you're all Republicans, end quote. The quip brought down the house with laughter, Aaron said, despite the grim circumstances. As the surgery wore on with Reagan under anesthesia for hours, there was consideration whether to leave the bullet in, which would be unusual if it wouldn't do him any farther harm. But bullets move around, especially bullets in lungs. 
They move around a lot, Aaron said. If that thing got loose and migrated out to his heart or got ejected out into his arterial system, his brain, that would have been a serious dereliction. The operating clock was ticking, but the issue was a pretty important one. Reagan's surgery lasted two hours, and he was listed as stable but good condition afterwards. They replied, quote, Mr. President, today we are all Republicans, in response to his previous joke. The president was losing a lot of blood. A handkerchief soaked through by the time he arrived at the hospital. The first thing I saw was a man, quote, who just was in dire straits. Aaron told ABC News he'd lost about 40% of his bloodline, enough to cause him to go unconscious for a time, and he was not a young man. Reagan's blood was a deep, dark hue, which meant less oxygenated, and a warning sign of the damage. Quote, the blood in this kind of injury would almost always be bright red, and the blood we saw draining out of him from his chest was very dark. Aaron said, the only way you can get that kind of dark blood in a chest wound is some component of pulmonary arterial system being damaged. He kind of waved off help from the stretcher, and he tried to walk. Took about three or four steps and just fell on his face, Aaron said. We had him on a stretcher lickety split and had at least one IV on him, almost within seconds. The next day, the president resumed some of his executive duties and signed a piece of legislation from his hospital bed. However, the events from the day showed just how unprepared we were as a nation at a time like this. Hankley's bullets, quote, each moment seemed like an hour, Aaron said, but persisting, they finally found the bullet, quote, if I had said, I'm staying here till tomorrow to get that bullet out, they probably would have deferred to that. He said, quote, I just had this niggling feeling it wouldn't be a good idea to wake up the next morning and see three-inch headlines in the paper which read, Doctor Failed to Remove Bullet from President. Aaron wouldn't find out until later what a crucial decision that would be. Quote, I didn't know that it was a devastator bullet, Aaron said. As it turned out, it was very fortunate that we did persist. Had we closed him up with that bullet in there, with that deadly azide, that's a toxin. We'd have to go back in, reopen him, and find it. There, There's no way in the world you can leave a bullet like that. Certainly not in the President of the United States. The assassination attempt was years in the making. As John Hinckley stood in the crowd outside the hotel where President Reagan was addressing the Union leaders, he wasn't thinking about the Iran hostage crisis, economic policy, or gas prices. Instead, as he held his 22 caliber rifle, he was hoping he'd finally manage to impress and woo the actress Jodie Foster. Hinckley grew up the son of a wealthy oil executive in Texas and moved to Los Angeles for a time in an effort to become a screenwriter. He had a little creative success, but became enamored with Foster after seeing the Martin Scorsese film Taxi Driver in which Foster played a 12-year-old girl who was a sex trafficking victim alongside Robert De Niro's dissatisfied cabbie and wannabe assassin. He moved up to New Haven, Connecticut when Foster began attending Yale. He slipped love letters under her door, though she never read any of them. When the stocking failed, Hinckley decided he'd declare his love by assassinating the president. In the what-the-fuck moment in American history, we've got Alexander Haig with the famous... Who's in charge? The 25th Amendment and Alexander Haig replies, I'm in charge here. President Reagan was shot and rushed to surgery, as we already know. During this tragedy, his cabinet had to handle one major question. Would the president be able to do his job 
or would the 25th Amendment need to be invoked? On March 30th of 81, President Ronald Reagan was shot as he was exiting the hotel, where he was put under anesthesia and underwent exploratory surgery. The doctors found that President Reagan had been shot in the chest, the bullet hitting him just two inches away from his heart. Also, to complicate the situation more, Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush was on board Air Force Two on his way back to the White House from Dallas, Texas. Bear in mind, they didn't have cell phones during this time. Though he was made aware of the president's condition, there were questions about the security of the communication between him and the rest of the staff. question for President Reagan's cabinet became this. Who was in control of the country? With the president in surgery and vice president on a plane, as half of President Reagan's cabinet sat in the Situation Room and the other half in a makeshift command center at the hospital, they had to discuss the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment and the repercussions it may have on the country. What is the 25th Amendment? The 25th Amendment was passed after the assassination of President Kennedy in order to clarify what happens upon the death, removal, or resignation of the president or vice president and how the presidency temporarily filled if the president becomes disabled and cannot fulfill his responsibilities. So what the hell does the 25th Amendment say? Presidential Disability and Secession, the 25th Amendment. Section 1, in case of removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become the president. Section 2, whenever there is a vacancy in the office of vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take the office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both House and Congress. Section 3. Whenever the President transmits to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the Vice President as Acting President. Whenever the Vice President and such majority of either the principal officers or executive departments of such body as Congress may by law provide and transmit to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that a President is unable to discharge the power and duties of his office. The Vice President shall immediately assume the power and duties of the office as Acting President. At the time, the 25th Amendment had only been invoked three separate times, Section 1 in 1974, Section 2 in 1973 and 74, and Section 4, which would have been applicable in this circumstance, had never been invoked. After much debate between members of the cabinet, the 25th Amendment was not invoked. President Reagan regained consciousness that evening and continued his duties. To this day, the 25th Amendment has only been invoked six times. Section 1 in 74 when Nixon resigned. Section 2 in 73 when Vice President Agnew resigned. Vice President Ford took his place. Section 2 in 74 when Vice President Ford became the president after President Nixon's resignation. Vice President Rockefeller became his successor. Section 3 in 1985 when President Reagan underwent colon surgery and Section 3 in both 2002 and 2007 when President Bush had a colonoscopy procedure. While Reagan lay in his hospital bed, Secretary of State Alexander Haig barged into a national news conference and made the infamous, quote, 
I'm in charge speech to a stunned nation. Only he made an itty bitty tiny mistake. According to the Constitution, the vice president, then George Herbert Walker Bush, was the next in line, as every schoolboy knows. Haig was a bundle of insecurities and low self-esteem. Quote, I'm being undermined by weenies and second-rate hand bones, end quote. Haig complained to an associate. Haig's legendary gaffe became a defining moment of his long career. It was a faux pas. Haig had become the patron saint of those who believe they have power when it's obvious they don't. Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger at Allen discussed the various issues, including the location of the nuclear football, the apparent presence of more than usual number of Soviet submarines unusually close off the Atlantic coast a possible Soviet invasion of Poland against the Solidarity Movement and the presidential line of succession. Although normally no tape recorders are allowed in the Situation Room, these meetings are recorded with the participants' knowledge by Allen, obtained a duplicate nuclear football and gold code card, and kept it in the Situation Room. Reagan's football was still with the officer at the hospital, and Bush also had the card and the football. The participants discussed whether they needed to raise the military alert status, the importance of doing so without changing the DEFCON level. Although the number of Soviet submarines had proved to be normal, upon learning that Reagan was in surgery, Haig declared the helm is right here, and that means right in this chair for now. Constitutionally, until the vice president gets here, however, Haig made an inaccurate statement. As the sitting Secretary of State, he was fourth behind the vice president and Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. Although others in the room knew that Haig's statement was constitutionally incorrect, they didn't object at the time to avoid a confrontation. Allen later said, although Haig constantly and incessantly drummed on some variant of I'm in charge, I am senior, despite his familiarity from serving as Richard Nixon's chief of staff, those in the situation were reportedly laughed when they heard him say, quote, I am in control here, end quote. And Allen later said that, quote, I was astounded that he would say something so eminently stupid. Haig later said, I wasn't talking about transition. I was talking about the executive branch who was running the government. That was the question asked. It was not, quote, who is in line should the president die, end quote. Although Haig stated in the briefing room that, quote, there are absolutely no alert measures that are necessary at this time or contemplated, and while he was speaking with Weinberger, raised the military alert level. After Haig returned to the Situation Room, he objected to Weinberger doing so as it made him appear a liar. Although, as Deputy Commander-in-Chief, only Reagan outranked Weinberger in the National Command Authority, Weinberger and others accused Haig of exceeding his authority with his, quote, I am in control statement, while Haig defended himself by advising the others to, quote, read the Constitution, end quote, saying that Congress did not involve secession, and he knew the pecking order. On Air Force One, Bush watched Haig's press conference. Meese told him that Reagan was stable after surgery to remove the bullet. The vice president decided to not fly by helicopter from Andrews Air Force Base to the White House. He later said, quote, only the president lands on the south lot, end quote, after landing at 6.30 p.m. Marine 2 instead flew to the number one observatory circle. Quote, Despite brief flare-ups and distractions, Allen recalled, 
the, quote, crisis management team in the Situation Room worked well together. The congressional leadership was kept informed and governments around the world were notified and reassured. Reagan's surgery ended at 6.20 p.m., although he did not regain consciousness until 7.30 p.m., so he could not invoke Section 3 of the 25th Amendment to make Bush acting president. The vice president arrived at the White House at 7 p.m. and did not invoke Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Bush took charge of the Situation Room meeting, which he found the Soviet attack on Poland had been postponed and that Hinckley had not specifically targeted Reagan. He stated on national television at 8.20 p.m., I can reassure this nation and the watching world that the American government is functioning fully and effectively. We've had full and complete communications throughout the day. Reagan returned to the Oval Office on April 25th and received a standing ovation from his staff and cabinet members. He referred to their teamwork in his absence and insisted, quote, I should be applauding you, end quote. He made his first public appearance in an April 28th speech before the Joint Houses of Congress. In this speech, he introduced his planned spending cuts, which had been a campaign promise. He received, quote, two thunderous standing ovations, end quote, which the New York Times deemed, quote, a salute to his good health, as well as his programs, which, the president introduced using a medical recovery theme. Reagan installed a gym in the White House and began regularly exercising, gaining so much muscle that he had to buy new suits. The shooting caused Nancy Reagan to fear for her husband's safety. However, she asked him to not run for re-election in 84, and because of her concerns, began consulting astrologer Joan Quigley. Reagan, as president, never again walked across an airport tarmac or got out of his limousine on a public sidewalk. The aftermath. Officer Thomas Delahante recovered but suffered nerve damage, ending his career on the police force. Officer Delahante moved from suburban Washington, D.C. to Pennsylvania. He moved after his wife's death. Officer Thomas Delahante. Officer Thomas Delahante recovered but suffered nerve damage, ending his career on the police force. Officer Delahante moved from suburban Washington, D.C. to Pennsylvania after the death of his wife, Jean. Timothy McCarthy recovered fully and received the NCAA Award of Valor in 1982 for his protection of the president. Since 19, he has served as the chief of police of Ordland Park, Illinois. James Brady was the most seriously wounded victim, having sustained a serious head wound and became permanently disabled. Brady remained press secretary for the remainder of Reagan's administration, primarily a titular role. Later, Brady and his wife Sarah became the leading advocates for gun control and other actions to reduce the amount of gun violence in the United States. They also became active in the lobbying organization Handgun Control Incorporated, which would eventually be renamed the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, and founded the nonprofit Brady Center to Prevent Violence, and founded the nonprofit Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. The Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act was passed in 1993 as a result of their work. Following James Brady's death on August 4, 2014, the District of Columbia Medical Examiner ruled his death a homicide stemming from wounds caused by the Hinckley assassination attempt. This ruling raised the possibility that Hinckley could face additional future murder charges. However, prosecutors declined to do so for two reasons. First, a jury had already declared Hinckley insane at the time of the shooting 
and the constitutional against double jeopardy would have precluded overturning this ruling on account of Brady's death. Second, in 1981, Washington, D.C. still had the common law, a year-and-a-day rule, in place, although the year-and-a-day rule had been abolished in the district prior to 2014. The constitutional against ex post facto law would preclude the committed the upgrading of charges for deaths resulting today from acts committed while the rule was in effect, and for that matter, would also prohibit the government from challenging Hinckley's successful insanity defense based on the current federal law. The shooting of Reagan exacerbated the debate on gun violence in the United States that began with the December 1980 handgun murder of John Lennon. Reagan expressed opposition to the increased handgun control following Lennon's death and reiterated his opposition after his own shooting. However, in a speech at an event marking the assassination attempt, 10th anniversary, Reagan endorsed the Brady Act. Quote, Anniversary is a word that usually associates with happy events, like that we like to remember, birthdays, weddings, first jobs. March 30th, however, March the anniversary, I would just as soon forget, but cannot. Four lives were changed forever, and all by a Saturday night special. A cheaply made 22 caliber pistol purchased in a Dallas pawn shop by a young man with a history of mental disturbance. This nightmare might have never happened if legislation that is before Congress now, the Brady Bill, had been in law set back in 1981. If the passage of the Brady Bill were to result in the reduction of only 10 to 15 percent of those numbers and it could be a good deal greater it would be well worth making it a law of the land and there would be a lot fewer families facing anniversaries such as the brady's delahantes mccarthy's and reagan's face every year on march 30th end quote hinkley was found not guilty on reason of insanity on june 21st 1982 the defense psychiatric reports had found him to be insane while the prosecution reports declared him legally sane, following his lawyer's advice, he declined to take the stand in his own defense. Hinckley was confined at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., full-time until 2006, at which point he began a program of spending gradually more time at his mother's home. On September 10, 2016, Hinckley was permitted to permanently leave the hospital and live with his mother full-time under court supervision and with mandatory psychiatric treatment. After his trial, he wrote that the shooting was, quote, the greatest love offering in the history of the world, end quote, and did not indicate any regrets at the time. The not guilty verdict led to widespread dismay, and as a result, the United States Congress and a number of states rewrote laws regarding the insanity defense. The penal code test was replaced by a test that shifts from the burden of proof regarding a defendant's sanity from the prosecution to the defendant. Three states have abolished the defense altogether. The assassination attempt was especially difficult for Jodie Foster, who was hounded relentlessly by the media during 1981 because she was Hinckley's target of obsession. Since then, Foster has only commented on Hinckley on three occasions. A press conference a few days after the attack, an Esquire magazine article she wrote in 82, and during an interview with Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes 2, in 1999, 
She has otherwise ended or canceled several interviews after the event was mentioned or the interviewer was going to bring up Hinckley. At George Washington University, Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine was established in 1991. During the 2010-2011 renovation done to preparation for his celebrating the 100th anniversary of his birth, the Ronald Reagan Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California installed a sound and photo diorama depicting the assassination attempt, and visitors are warned of startling gunshot effects. John Hinckley and the Jodie Foster obsession. For those of you living under a rock, Jodie Foster is a hella good actor. Hinckley went straight up stalker, even pulling the actress into the Reagan assassination attempt. Let's head back to the shooting. Fortunately, Hinckley was a poor shot and most of the bullets did not explode as they were supposed to do. Hinckley's path towards assassination attempt began in 76 when he saw the movie Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle stalks a presidential candidate in the hopes that he will somehow impress and rescue a young prostitute played by Jodie Foster. Hinckley, who spent seven years in college without earning a degree or making a friend, added Foster to his list of obsessions. Over the following years, Hinckley stalked Foster around the country, going as so far as to enroll in a writing course at Yale University in 1980 after reading People magazine that she was a student there. He wrote numerous letters and notes to her in late 1980. He called her twice and refused to give up when she indicated that she was not interested in him, convinced that by becoming a national figure, he would be Foster's equal. Hinckley decided to emulate Bickle and began to stalk President Jimmy Carter. He was surprised at how easy it was to get close to the president, only one foot away at one event, but was arrested October 1980 at the Nashville International Airport for illegal possession of firearms. Though Carter made a campaign stop there, the FBI did not connect his arrest to the president and did not notify the United States Secret Service. His parents briefly put him under the treatment of a psychiatrist. Subsequently, Hinckley turned his afternoon to Ronald Reagan, whose election told his parents would be good for the country. After Reagan was shot and nearly killed, there was a great deal of confusion at the state upper levels of government. In the most notable incident, Secretary of State Alexander Haig told the press that he was in control of the White House pending the return of the vice president, under the mistaken belief that he was in the chain of command placed in charge. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity on June 21, 1982. The defense psychiatric reports found him to be insane while the prosecution reports declared him legally sane. By its very existence and character, Berlin remains the most compelling argument for an open world. We're reminded of the many traditions of openness and democracy that have marked the history of this city. America missed me. <laughs> Very big special thanks to the following. Hobbylark.com History.com ABC News ReaganLibrary.gov FBI.gov The Freedom of Information Act Reagan.blog.archives.gov RareHistoricalPhotos.com TheHuffingtonPost.com FoxNews.com CNN.com TheWashingtonPost.com 
static.hlt.bme.hu, The New York Times for the aftermath. I'm your host, Dan Hudson. Peace!